I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Orwell says somewhere that no one ever writes the real story of their life. The real story of a life is the story of its humiliations. If I wrote that story now, radioactive to the end of time, people, I swear, your eyes would fall out, you couldn't peel the gloves fast enough from your hands scorched by the firestorms of that shame. Your poor hands your poor eyes, to see me weeping in my room or boring the tall blonde to death. Once I accused the innocent. Once I bowed and prayed to the guilty. I still wince at what I once said to the devastated widow. And one October afternoon, under a locust tree whose blackened pods were falling and making illuminating patterns on the pathway, I was seized by joy. And someone saw me there. And that was the worst of all, lacerating and unforgettable. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Vijay Sashadri, who was born in India in 1954, came to the United States at the age of five, and grew up in Ohio. Before becoming a poet, he worked as a commercial fisherman, truck driver, logger, and biologist for the National Marine Fisheries Service. He's the author of three collections of poetry, Wild Kingdom, The Long Meadow, and Three Sections, which won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize. 
You were born in India. Yeah. Back in 1954. Right. And you came over when you were five years old. Your parents came over. My father had come first to get his PhD. He was a physicist. And then he got a postdoc. So he came back to India to fetch my mother and myself. And the three of us went to Canada, where we were for two years. And then we were in Columbus, Ohio, through most of the 60s. What was it like for you growing up as a child here? Because at five years old, you still have memories yeah. going back before oh, yeah. then. I remember India vividly, and I remember the trip here vividly. We stopped in London. We took a plane. My father had taken a boat when he first came. And I think those first two years in Canada were pretty happy years for me, you know. But then when I got to Ohio, I became increasingly estranged from society because I was so different. And unfortunately, my parents had skipped me a couple of grades that had shown a degree of precocity, intellectual precocity. And I'd been skipped two grades, and so I was a very small, brown, bespectacled kid in a really monoracial environment. And monoracial and also monocultural. You know, there weren't many people who weren't of the Protestant stock of Ohio at that time. And that's kind of a mixed bag, and the experience itself was sort of uh, isolating, and I really didn't break that isolation until I went to college at the age of 16. And that was the period of the counterculture, and I just kind of, you know, blossomed into the counterculture. Was it a self-imposed isolation? I think I was very shy naturally and kind of, you know, aware, but it was also, you know, I was just obviously, because I was so different and small, you know, an easy target for bullying. And, you know, in that period when children bully others you know, was kind of the sweet spot of my despair and misery because of, like, all of these other factors. And I think I had a sort of inborn sense of pride and dignity, which made me feel like, oh, I wasn't going to put myself in a position where this was going to be possible in any way. And I didn't articulate that for myself. I just sort of instinctively knew. So, yeah, the isolation was largely self-imposed. And... My parents, God bless them, were sort of, they didn't really know what to do with America and they didn't know what to do with me. I mean, there were no Indians there. There was no support network or anything like that for them. We were strangers in a strange land. We were pioneers, you know. And I look back on it now and it was stark and difficult and really interesting and instructive too, you know. It gave me all sorts of insights into the world, which helped me later. And then just compensating for that isolation over the next, say, 10 years or so, 10, 12 years, was a tremendous adventure in and of itself. You know, like I went out into America, the America that frightened me so much as a child. I decided I was going to explore and that was fantastic. And that was a period when the country kind of invited you to be adventurous. 
And I took advantage, full advantage of that invitation. And my parents were kind of appalled, you know, that I did, that I became sort of this counterculture person and, you know, and went back to the land and repudiated society and civilization. I mean, you have to remember this is the era of the civil rights movement, Vietnam War, which was just, you know. You were at the perfect age for that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was a little younger than kind of the generation of 68 and, you know, like the summer of love and that stuff. So we came... But not much. Not much, yeah. Not but much. we were always chasing that, right? That mm -hmm. was going away and like people who were of my cohort were just a little behind it and excited by it and always chasing it mm -hmm. into its last vestiges. Right. You, you were know, old enough to to understand the implications of it, but young enough to be, not feel like you were quite right. there. Yeah. Yeah. I was three years behind you, so right. I wasn't even to that right. point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was a huge shift then, you know, in the music and everything and, you know, and you remember the music, it just became kind of, it lost itself after that great efflorescence. And it was only towards the end of the decade when you started getting punk and new wave. And, and the only thing that was a carryover was sort of reggae, I remember, on the West Coast. I mean, reggae was really big. And, and I just got into jazz in that period. And so everything was a shift. And I remember... Really distinctly, I wound up on the Oregon coast. I was a commercial fisherman for five years. And how old were you at that point? I was in the Bay Area until I was about 23. And then at 23, I went to Oregon. And I stayed there until I was 28. You know, even though I traveled up and down the coast a lot, I was very peripatetic and kind of very footloose. And so, and I remember at the end of that decade, when Ronald Reagan was elected, I realized, oh, this is another cultural shift and a cultural watershed. And that's when I started preparing to take my career as a writer seriously. I mean, all of that was premised on the idea that I was going to be a writer and that, you know, a writer should live an experience. And, you know, and I wanted to live an experience. So there was a kind of, but that was sort of a superficial justification but it was great. America was great then, you know. I mean, it was fantastic. And, you know, and it's sad to see it in the state it's in now, real confusion. And and we've been heading down that path for about 30-some-odd sure. years or yeah. more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And people try to break out, but it's very, very different. I don't think anybody really understands the power of demographics or can make it sensible to themselves, you know. When I graduated from high school in 1970, there were 180 million people in this country, I think. You know, I might be wrong about that number. It was between 180 and 200 or so. You know, now there are 350 million people. That really transforms things, you know. That's a significant. So? Huh? Well, just the pressure on everything, right? The tremendous pressure, for example, you know, if you're a 17-year-old applying to college now, you're dealing with a much, much more competitive situation. You know, if you want to go to a good school, you're competing with twice as many people, at least. And, you know, that kind of competition has increased. That's just one example. On the institutions of the country, there's a tremendous sort of, you know, the pressure of just people 
And that's true the world over, you know. And in fact, all of our political problems in some sense stem from that, you know, unease, that demographic unease. Which is now expanding out in many different tangential directions, which is terrifying some of these people that are generally insecure about these things to begin with. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So you said that when you were young, you had some insights into your experience that helped you further down the road years later. How old were you when you were having these insights, and what are these insights? I mean, clearly you were a very precocious child. Yeah, I think insights is probably an imprecise word. What I had was a precocious consciousness about certain things, like about the nature, the relationship between the individual and society. You know, a lot of kind of kids who are alienated from their surroundings have at that age, you know, and a lot of those kids become artists, right? They're separated early from the herd in some way, and they become aware of it in certain ways. And They never fit in. Right. So they have to find a whole other right. way to, to fit in, exactly. so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have to find a way. I don't think it's fitting in because that implies that the task is to become a part of society. I would say that the task is to sort of integrate all the aspects of yourself, right? Right. The social and the imaginative and the internal and the physical even in something that is coherent. And the social aspect of it is sort of important. And there's a conventional path to that kind of integration that society offers, you know. For example, even though I was two years younger than anybody else, I was an extremely good student in high school, and it didn't take me much to be a good student. But I did no extracurricular activities at all. And my parents didn't even know that this was important, you know that this was an important aspect of American society. They thought that you go to school and you learn this stuff and you come home like they did. You know, I mean, in India, this kind of extracurricular stuff was not significant or important in the schools they went to, right? Because that that was taken care of at home. Yeah, I mean, you were a part of an ancient order and, you know, the rituals of your highly developed, overdeveloped society. And so... You know, it never dawned on them in some way that, oh, you know, maybe we should make this kid join the newspaper or the literary magazine so he can have these credentials on his college application. They didn't think that way. You know, uh-huh. they just thought he should be doing his homework and and that's it. So that kind of social integration, which is crucial in that period, you know, I saw it happen with my son, who's 26 now, and he did everything in a normative way. And, you know, it's a huge aspect of American educational culture, which I had no contact with, no access to, you know. And then it was natural for me not to be a joiner, you know. And not being a joiner, it was subsequently natural for me to sort of address myself to things like wilderness, which I was really interested in, or to things that I had devised on my own as explanations of the world, you know. So there was a kind of period in which I was very, very interested in, you know, 
religion and religious traditions and mysticism and stuff like that. And, you know, and I don't think I'm an inherently unusual person, you know. I mean, I think I'm basically, as I've proved over the years, I've become more and more normal, and I'm normal like everybody else. And now I do all of, just, I join like everybody else does, you know. And uh, But that separation is much more apparent when we're young, I think. Because mm-hmm. later on, as, as we become adults and grow into our later years, we tend to gravitate towards more like-minded people. Right. Whereas when we're a child, we don't know how to do that, and it's usually not even available. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I don't know what would have happened to me if I hadn't, you know, just out of sheer accident, been living in this revolutionary time. You know, now that I'm the age I am, I look back to that and I go, wow, that was just amazing. That was an extraordinary period, and I took full advantage of it. I wasn't really a druggie or anything, but I was really into kind of discovering a new consciousness, finding a new way of existing in relationship to society and the universe, and that this was an imperative. And you were literally on the cutting edge of that cultural movement. Yeah, yeah, that was great. So I'm really curious, how did that experience, how has that influenced your writing and entered into your poetry? Yeah. I mean, strangely enough, it's had a kind of paradoxical effect that early on I was so dazzled by the experimentalism I was surrounded by that I worked my way through it pretty quickly. And when I sat down to be a serious poet in my mid-20s, I wasn't easily swayed or seduced by quote-unquote new ideas because I'd already seen those ideas in their inception and had worked out for myself what the possibilities were. And so when I started writing, I started writing a very, very classical sort of American poem. I didn't write a radical poem. You know, I... I took as models people like middle period Robert Lowell or Elizabeth Bishop throughout her whole career and stuff because I'd gone through the kind of California countercultural poets and I'd gone through Ashbery and I'd gone through Frank O'Hara and all of that stuff and I had been able to because I was familiar with it, and because even though I admired it tremendously, I mean, I think these are tremendous poets, I was much stronger in my ability to say, well, yeah, but what I have to do, I have to figure out, and I have to find models that are technically useful to me, and stuff like that. So I was freed in some way. I mean, and I think if we think of the 60s as cutting edge... I was really a creature of the 70s. I turned 16 in 1970. And then, you know, and I spent those 10 years, those 12 years, basically, sort of experimenting. And then I came to New York and went to graduate school. And, you know, and I've been there ever since, living as a writer, an editor, a teacher, and stuff like that. And the 70s, they were a mysterious decade. Yeah, there was a real kind of strangeness to them. 
that you know it was a very liminal period there was yes. this sure. coming out of the 60s and then ostensibly trying to integrate right. what we either learned right. experienced and often had destroyed right. or found that it didn't fit didn't apply right. into the future in in the ways that the future was opening up. Right. Yeah. I mean, the ideas were worked out practically, and then their flaws were revealed. You know, for example, the sexual revolution of the 60s mm-hmm. led to this situation where there was a lot of sexual freedom in the 70s, but no real kind of stability or happiness and stuff like that. And then... You know, this has been Gay Pride Month and the celebration of Stonewall and all of that stuff. Stonewall is a 70s phenomenon. Gay liberation is a 70s phenomenon. You know, women's liberation in the sense of a force that led to the Me Too movement is really a 70s phenomenon, right? You know, that there was a radicalism of the 60s that was a universal radicalism. But women realized that that radicalism was in some way patriarchal in relationship to them, too, right? And so you get a sort of militancy in the 70s if you think about feminism and feminist thought. You know, like Bell Hooks, Mary Daly, all of those people are writers out who come in the aftermath of the revolutions of the 60s. Gay liberation comes in the aftermath of the revolutions of the 60s, which really centered around civil rights and the Vietnam War. And stuff like that. And then the big shift in America is, of course, to lifestyles. And, you know, people who have an allegiance to a kind of overarching progressivism, like myself, or like our friend Bernie Sanders, right? You know, like, they don't quite get the kind of greater specificity that happens in terms of like well we're going to live a new way we're going to have new concepts and new constructs you know and then out of that you get identity politics and all of the stuff that we see in our contemporary political landscape now and in our artistic landscape you know it's very much of a piece all of it and so the 70s are where all that stuff is being worked out and it's resolving in certain ways and and getting anchored in a way right make it real and yeah and you were doing a lot of very earthy jobs like you worked as a fisherman a logger a truck driver well i when i went out to california when i was 20 i worked as a truck driver But it was sort of an intellectual truck driver's job. I drove a truck for UBC Book Company. (laughs) And UBC was a book company that distributed books to college bookstores. Mm -hmm. So I would go to college campuses. You know, like Chico State, I'd go out into the valley or, you know. So you didn't feel like a traditional truck driver? No, yeah. It wasn't like I was in a semi or anything like that, yeah. But it was a truck. It was, you know. Mm -hmm. Good size, you know, like one of those U-Haul trucks that you would rent. It was that kind of truck. And so, yeah, that was the only truck driving I did. And the logging, I was mostly a tree planter. I mean, I worked on logging crews a couple of times. But that work was, you know, just too much physically, even for me. And I was kind of, you know, I'd done a lot of other physical work. But logging is tough, you know. And setting chokers is dangerous. And 
You know, not that fishing isn't, but it doesn't require tremendous physical strength. So I didn't do much of that. Mostly I was in the fishing industry. I used to run a salmon buying barge, buying salmon during the silver season on the central Oregon coast. And, you know, and I worked on crabbers and I worked on drag boats and did various things. It was a kind of, you know, you got the job seasonally and stuff like that. And I went up there and did that, but it was really still the counterculture that I was a part of. And this was just a an aspect of it. And I really loved the ocean. And the moment I got out and saw the Pacific, when I got out to California, I said, wow, you know, I had to be on it. And I was actually thinking about spending a career doing that. And so I'd taken some ichthyology courses and I wound up on the Bering Sea, my, you know, last book, Three Sections, as a long prose account of time I spent on the Bering Sea working as a biologist, a low-level biologist for the National Marine Fisheries Service. And, that was uh, the one part of the book I didn't read. I didn't have enough time. Yeah. But I saw that this was a story. Yeah. So I was intrigued. Yeah, I just stuck a story in the middle of it. Because I had this material and I didn't quite know what to do with it, you know. So I said, oh, I'll put it in a poem. It's fragmented enough. But your first collection of poetry, Wild Kingdom, which I haven't read, that is somehow based or influenced by your early work as a fisherman and doing these other things? Yeah, it has two long poems in it that are, one is a, a long narrative about fishing and one is a long narrative about a guy who gets lost in the woods. And so that poem is really kind of, it's filled with my experience of nature. And it's also the one book where I really... The urban poems are somehow all about race, you know, because I wrote it after I came back to New York. And so I was confronted with suddenly a racialized situation. You know, I mean, the Oregon coast at that time was kind of racialized in a different way. You know, there were American Indian tribes on the coast. There were kind of a lot of sort of East Asians from the earlier East Asian migrations, Chinese and Japanese from, you know, the early part of the 20th century were in the fishing industry. And the fishing industry attracted a variety of people from different parts of society, you know, including a lot of hippies and stuff. And it was cosmopolitan in a certain way because people went up and down the coast, you know, they fished on the ocean, but they went to different ports all the way down to San Francisco, some cases even all the way down to San Diego. And the seasonal aspect of right. it gave people an unusual amount of freedom right. during off-seasons. Right, yeah. So they were kind of worldly. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, worldly in an interesting way. And so there were aspects of, you know, I didn't feel uncomfortable racially or anything. But being an Indian, somehow I wound up fitting in. And also, everybody had long hair and beards, and I had one too. And that was more of a, a kind of physical marker of who you were than anything else, you know? Mm -hmm. I think difference was much more valued yeah. at that point as it well. It really was, yeah. 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 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, in the 70s, people were far more sophisticated than they've been in America since. You know, right. I tell my 40-something millennial friends that, you know, and I tell them, oh, this country was so much more progressive then in every way, shape, and form, you know. And But also Jeez. when you think about, like, how much money the Carter administration was spending in alternative energy and the explosion of sort of interest in solar power then, you mm -hmm. know. And we already knew about global warming then. You know, we used to call it the greenhouse effect and, you know, chlorofluorocarbons and, you know, environmentalism was a 70s phenomenon mm -hmm. and it was huge. Mm -hmm. You know, there were environmental, there were eco-terrorists then. That's when the eco-terrorists came around and stuff like that. And so there was a degree of sophistication there that was completely lost. I mean... The Reagan administration shut all that down. The country took such a swerve after that. I remember when I first came back to New York, the government had a plan called the Comprehensive Employment and Training Program, CEDA. And they would give people jobs. It was like the Works Progress Administration in the 30s. You know, people got jobs to go into distressed communities and do educational stuff. And I got a job when I came back to New York to go to Columbia to go to graduate school working for CEDA, which was the 70s program that survived the first couple of years of the Reagan era. And they paid me to go to the Bronx to teach kids writing through the process of getting them together and putting together a little newspaper, you know? Mm -hmm. And I had these kids who, you know, they came after school. And they were people, this was connected to, like, aid to families with dependent children and stuff. They had to sort of show that they had needs. And once they showed that they had needs, the children could come. And these were teenagers. And there was stuff like that all over the place, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it was really, yeah, so much more progressive. I mean, it was still the Great Society and its effects were still strongly felt. Not just in, you know, things that people associate with the welfare state, like food stamps, but in all of these enrichment projects and ideas. So it was a very, very progressive time mm -hmm. and a very kind of interesting model looking back at what we could do now if we had, you know, a government that was really engaging with these problems. And so, yeah, I mean, I was very lucky. And I guess you were, too, because you remember all of that, right? Yeah. And I had very, very progressive parents. Uh -huh. So I was well-informed, even as a child. Uh -huh. I spent a year in, in southern Spain when I was eight, nine years old, and that completely changed my worldview. Yeah. I was no longer an insulated provincial American. Right. And when I came back, it was a culture shock to be back in the United States. Yeah. And the first memory I have was um, first morning in school was the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh -huh. And when we were in Spain, people were asking my father, why are you in Vietnam? Why are you in Vietnam? And my father said... Well, in America, just like here, there are people who don't agree with their government. Just like you don't agree with Franco. And they went, ah, ah, yes, <laughs> yeah. we understand. So when I saw that everyone stood up to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, put their hand over their heart to the flag, 
I looked at the flag and I, I saw the government. Yeah. I saw the U.S. government, which I was deeply ashamed of. Yeah. So I sat back down. Wow. And everybody in the class turned and looked at me. Yeah. And I had a very progressive teacher. He never said a word about it. Yeah. And so whenever they did the Pledge of Allegiance, I just sat through it. And yeah. nobody said anything. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 And I wasn't thinking along any particularly radical lines. It was just it was just anathema to me. Yeah. I just couldn't pledge allegiance to a, a flag that symbolized a quasi fascist, imperialist mm-hmm. government. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the poet Hal Sirowitz at all? No, I don't. He's uh he's a really good poet. He was the poet laureate of Queens. Uh-huh. And you know, after 9-11, he writes this poem about going to a baseball game with his girlfriend, who's very, very radical. And it's a Mets game. And the Afghan war is starting, and they play God Bless America, and everybody stands up, but she won't stand up, and he doesn't know what to do. So he tries to half stand up and half sit down because he's, like, torn because, you know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to, like, get everybody mad at him around him. Everybody's standing up and singing God Bless America, and she refuses to stand up. And <laughs> it's a hilarious poem in that way. And he's, like, half standing up and half sitting down. and you know, It's kind of brilliant. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Vijay Sashadri. He's the author of three collections of poetry, including Wild Kingdom, The Long Meadow, and three sections, which won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. So in your, your more recent poetry, the first poems that I read uh-huh. of yours had a mixture of surrealism, like dreamscapes mixed in with waking experience. Uh-huh. And, and I'm kind of fascinated by that. Right. I just find that has been occurring throughout my life uh-huh. to a large degree in all sorts of different ways that... Generally, I don't really understand, but I don't feel like I really need to understand uh-huh. the way the subconscious tends to just erupt and emerge. And Sure. So I was intrigued by those poems. Yeah. They don't seem to be the majority of your poetry, but I'm curious how, those, how that arises for you and how they fit together for yeah. you. And yeah. I mean, I think... The process of making art is somehow the process of making the relationship between what used to be called the unconscious and the conscious, the barrier between them permeable in some way, so that you kind of get arresting and dramatic images. And those images, in some case, could be very, very specific and naturalistic. As in, for example, say a great poet like William Carlos Williams is very image-driven. And those images seem to be a part of the real world, you know. But actually, what is called the subconscious or the unconscious is permeating those images, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the red wheelbarrow image, you know? So much depends on a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside white chickens, 
right? He wants you to see the red wheelbarrow with rainwater on it and the white chickens. But there's something very, very mysterious about the poem itself and very rich and charged about the image. So that's kind of an invisible presence of unconscious energy. And surrealism is more a kind of visible presence of unconscious energy within erupting into, you know, ordinary conscious description and storytelling. In the case of someone like Kafka, or, you know, he's a proto-surrealist, he's not really a surrealist. It's not an ideology of surrealism. He's hypnogogic, you know. He's basically in a trance-like state where things are emerging and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I think that border is always the border of, like, art. But in the 20th century, people become conscious of it. And people start, like, letting more and more in Mm -hmm. without feeling that they have to somehow rationalize it. And so I think, you know, those elements that are a little strange and the transitions that are a little strange are... Abrupt. Yeah. Like, it seems as though you didn't make any attempt to to make sense of the presence of these wildly disparate elements yeah. in the poem. Yeah. And I, I like that. I mean, I, I grew up with that. Yeah. I had a lot of hypnagogic experiences growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. So I'm very comfortable with that. Sure. But I'm always curious about other people's experience. Yeah. I mean, mostly what I'm doing and mostly what a poet does is to find things that are interesting and arresting, right? And then you just have to sort of have faith in your own strangeness, your own individuation, and be willing to let that aspect of you do what it does in some way. I mean, I think my poems are... uh, And I should add that at any point... Feel free to pick up a poem and, and read. Okay, yeah. Whenever yeah. it feels appropriate. Well, I'll read a poem and then I'll talk about it. How's mm-hmm. that sound? That's wonderful. This is a poem, you know, we were talking historically, you know, and then there's American history and then there's also personal history. And I arrived at a period in the past five years or so where, you know, I arrived at a certain age and people who were very close to me, who I love very deeply, my parents and you know, friends and relatives of that age were dying. And so when I sit down to write poetry, when I had sat down to write poetry these past years, that's taken up a lot of my interest because, you know, not only like all of the human emotions and feelings that you have to deal with and wrestle with, but also death is one of the great subjects, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's a subject even in poets whom it doesn't seem to obviously be a subject, you know. And the sense of loss, unredeemable loss, mm. you know. You ain't going to get it back. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you're heading there too. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know. Although that feels different than this, yes. you know. Yeah. It's kind of the existential condition and the emotional condition don't actually overlap very much, you know. You don't grieve for your own death. You grieve for the death of others, you know. You fear and are terrified and are dreading your own death, maybe. Or the process leading to it. Right. Yeah. You know. 
You know, I mean, I wanted to get beyond the subject, but I couldn't quite. And this was sort of... When you say you, you wanted to get beyond? You know, someone you love dies, and you mourn them, and you grieve. And then you're supposed to get on, right? There are mm -hmm. the five stages and right. all of that stuff, or however many stages there are, and mm -hmm. you're supposed to go through them, and, mm -hmm. you know. And it's considered, especially in this positivistic culture, very different from India. You know, Indians grieve and mourn forever. You know, they just, you know. In India, you don't celebrate your birthday, but you celebrate death days. You acknowledge death days. You know, you go to the temple and you do, you know. That's really important. But my parents never gave me birthday parties or did anything for my birthday. That was a Western thing. They started doing it because they felt like, oh, you know, other people here do it. Oh. They would kind of, you know, the deaths of their parents, they always acknowledged in some little way and stuff like that. So that's like reintegrating our past our and our culture, sure. our history, which is something that Western culture seems to be divorced from. Yeah. And in the United States, never even had it to begin with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can see, you know, I mean, those are significant differences. Very significant. You know, and uh, and we're living out a kind of pathology that can be attributed to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know a lot of twenty-somethings, and they seem to have a culture of birthday celebrations. And you know, every year they always have these huge birthdays. My son is always going to birthday parties of his friends, and and I keep telling him, "Come on, Nicholas. I mean." Is this such an extraordinary thing that this person was born that they have to, you know, have lavish celebrations every year of their, you know, like... Didn't you do this last year? I know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an important distinction. But anyway, I'll read a poem that sort of addresses in some way both kind of the strangeness issue, you know, and I think that's what I like to call it rather than surrealism, the sort of, you know... Mm -hmm the assimilation of strangeness into the body of the poem. I like that as well, because yeah. surrealism wasn't a part of my life. Like, right. even when I was experimenting with, with LSD, right. I didn't hallucinate. Right. I just had an, an altered perspective. Right. Yeah. 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 And this is also a poem kind of like a part of the grief sequence. And it's also a poem that has a sort of stringent formality it's a long thin poem that's sort of held together by rhymes and a very light three beat meter and all of those things are a part of like peculiar strangeness of the phenomenal life of the poem and it's called city of grief no one needs an explanation here for what happened. It happened is the explanation. No one here belongs to a race, an empire, a nation. Only to this unmappable, landlocked, film noir city situated in eternity. They live by night here. The time here is local time. The crime is local crime. The girl with the name she stole from her dead sister, the dead man in the lake, know that things are forever the same. Sameness is their essence. 
Nothing here is sinister, because nothing is at stake. Everything is null and void of depth, of resonance, not real but celluloid. Yesterday was yesterday, today is today, and no one cares why one becomes the other. No one but the private eye, that is, the gumshoe, the bird dogs standing in for us, our body double, our fedora sporting anachronistic, obsolete consciousness, who is always tortured by what he can't understand, who hires himself to investigate himself, who cooks his dinner for one and tries to think through what can't be thought through. The black wine is aerating, the pasta is limp and waiting to be sauced and tossed. There is a clue to find. There is an innocence to establish and an anguish in him he needs to destroy before it destroys him. An anguish so pure it almost feels like joy. So that goes through these kind of ideas about grief that are embodied in basically the mythology of Hollywood, the film noir, you know, the fedora sporting private eye, the, you know, dead man in the lake, you know, all these elements that are out of Philip Marlowe movies, you know, when... And that's one of the motifs of the estrangement there. And it's also sort of determinative existentially because, you know, you think of the private eye in American popular culture as a kind of existential hero, you know. He's living in a corrupt world, right, especially in film noir, you know. And he's kind of isolated within that corruption, you know, and he does his duty, he has to do his duty, but he's a part of an absurdity that he can't quite understand. You know, Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon, you know, the hard-boiled sort of, you know, and that connection is very, very deep because, of course, it's picked up in French film and it becomes very much a part of the way in which these characters occur in these films. And so this is sort of a transposition of that, that mythology onto these feelings of grief, a way to embody them, you know. And the idea that somehow just your internal life when you're feeling things like grief suddenly become like a film noir classic in a way. And so that's like how it becomes a little strange. You make something rather than going ahead and saying, oh, I feel this grief and, you know, and what am I going to do about it? Or, you know, addressing it directly, I sort of address it circuitously. I go around it and I kind of try to create a narrative that allows me to embody those emotions, to find, you know, what T.S. Eliot called the objective correlative of the emotion. And that's sort of the way in which I tend to approach powerful feelings overmastering feelings. I particularly enjoyed the way you transpose yourself into or the subject of the poem. 
through these kind of dynamics. Those stood out for me in several of the poems of yours that I've read. Yeah. It's like a playful way of, of addressing the issue of our own presence in this world. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm considered a poet who is capable of humor. But humor is just incongruity, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of the eruption of something unexpected. It's a rupture of logic, you know, and a denial of expectation in a way. And so the aftermath of that is laughter. But that's not what a stand-up is doing. A really great stand-up comedian is upending reality in some way. Exactly. You know? You know, I mean, if you see someone like Jonathan Winters, for example, one of the great geniuses, you know, he's just like, it's a whole fabric of reality he's dealing with. Yeah, and, and he's totally radically transforming it. And, uh, and the funny stuff just comes out of that, that deeper engagement. And, uh, and it's so authentic for him that he expresses it physically as well. Yeah. Sure. Which is very unusual. Absolutely. Even in, in the best stand-up comedians. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, should I read another one and then... Yes, absolutely. And this is a new poem, and it's called Meeting. And I think a lot of the occasions for poetry now for me stem to a certain extent from urban life rather than natural life in the way that my earlier poems stem from natural life, kind of looking at nature and thinking about it. And one of the aspects of life in New York is that you know a lot of people and they fall in and out of your life and suddenly they reappear and they say they want to meet, you know, and you don't quite know why. And I had a sort of request like that from someone whom I hadn't seen for years. And I assumed it had something to do with life changes going on with her and stuff. And so after she got a hold of me, I wrote this poem. And it's called Meeting. I'll meet if you really want to meet. I'll even meet in some small cafe or some park across the way. But I won't meet for long, and not for a minute will I look at you in your isolation your human isolation. Looking at yours makes me look at mine. Transparencies of each other are they, yours and mine. And I don't have time for mine. So how could I have time for yours? When I knew you, I had time for mine. When I knew you, imagining my skeletal, streaming, solitary, oceanic swimming enlarged my dignities. Not anymore. No time for the nostalgias, infinite, infinitesimal, and the ones in between. No time to pretend I can sustain anyone or even understand how they feel, to show by the grave downward turn of the face, the haunted eyes, the image of an impossible inward stricken empathy. The contradictions are unsupportable. And I don't have time to not support mine. So how could I not support yours, too? I don't even have time to write this text. See how uninflected it is? Without rhetoric, expatiation, 
form, concreteness, geography, weather, flora, fauna, plain and bare, which shows you that I'm sincere. No Denali, no great rift, no seven-year trillium, and not one Phoebe in the woods getting ready to sing. I grew up in New York City, so I, I can understand. So how did you wind up here? With, uh... My father was an artist, uh-huh. starving artist, uh-huh. and he was just fed up with the cutthroat competition down there. Uh-huh. And he just had to get out. Uh-huh. So he slowly worked his way up here, uh-huh. bought some land, built the house, uh-huh. and then I came up in time to go to high school. Oh, wow. Before, similar to your experience, I was a small, uh-huh. blonde, white uh-huh. kid uh-huh. in a multiracial neighborhood yeah. in the East Village. Wow, yeah. Well, before it was called each, I the know, Lower yeah, East sure. Side. Yeah. So I, I stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, sure. So it was the reverse of... Yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great that you had that experience. So it's great that you wind up here. You know, mm-hmm. Vermont it's, is so fantastic. I love Vermont. Vermont is like an extension of the '70s of this progressive state of mind that has taken root and hasn't disappeared, mm-hmm. like it has in much of the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah we consider ourselves total Vermonters. <laughs> we only come up in the summer, though. But I would imagine for you, as it is for me, that. Even like in New York City, with pretty much a spectrum of all human experience, we have a different perspective of it. Sure. A different kind of appreciation yeah. for it. Sure. It's not something that scares us yeah. at, at the level that the quote-unquote conservatives of this country yeah. are, are terrified of all the changes and, yeah. and the diversity that, yeah. that is the essence of, of life. Yeah. 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 So I've always felt very comfortable with New York City, but I've never been drawn to live there again. Yeah. It's just too yeah. fast and I too I mean, I think if I left, crazy. I'd never go back, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, it's so hard to get into it now. And if you are into it, it's so hard to get out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a strange thing. I mean, it's very different for me than for my wife because she grew up there. And she went away to college, but her idea was, well, yeah, you go away to college, but you come back to New York. I mean, what else would you do, you know? But she's a real New Yorker in a way that I'm not. In a way that you probably would have been if you'd stayed there, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a truth to New York City that's very, very profound. You know, and the truth to New York City is that the only way to go is either up or down, (laughs) right? (laughs) You can't just live. You got to go. You got to climb. You know, it's the verticality of New York is so severe in that way. Well, it's sort of like you know? like swimming, that you have to keep swimming, like yeah. the way sharks have to keep moving just to right. survive. Sure. Yeah. 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 So you have the illusion of staying put, right. but it takes a lot of effort. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been away for a month now. I can't believe how much easier it is psychologically everywhere else. Anyway, good. VJ. Sashadri is a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and the author of three collections of poetry, including Wild Kingdom, The Long Meadow, and Three Sections, which won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize. 
And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Sashadri speaking at a celebration of Elizabeth Bishop. teaching poetry I would introduce it to my students by saying this is the greatest poem ever written and then I would go on to say that this is the greatest poem ever written because this is the greatest poem that could possibly be written because it's about the absolute limit of human experience the thing that we recognize when we recognize self and being and that you know you cannot aspire to a loftier subject and you can never arrive at it it will always slip away from you and in fact this is a poem about almost arriving at a certain fundamental revelation a certain enlightenment and having it slip away from you and so I read this poem you know when I was living on the Oregon coast and it just dazzled me so this poet I had read who I thought was kind of a good poet you know I mean and who uh, I had uh, had a lot of respect for and had admired, I think for a lot of reasons that were adventitious. You know, she represented a kind of culture that I regarded as authentic. She was an embodiment of a certain kind of down east Anglo-Saxon non-conformism that I recognized as kind of a thread in American culture. She had, you know, what Emerson famously called a transparent eyeball. You know, she just kind of, you know, the world reflected. I mean, when one reads Bishop and and sees the way she sees, like, you're always reminded of that famous saying of Goethe's, and Goethe said at one point, it is better to think than to do, better to feel than to think, but best of all, merely to look. You know? 
and she allows you to look and look and look inexhaustibly. And so I recognized and appreciated all of that, and I loved the diction and the natural tone. It connected me to other writers whom I admired in a kind of historical continuity, going back through Yeats to Wordsworth, the conversational tone, the commitment to prose order, all of those things I was picking up because that was a time when I was living in Oregon when I was trying to make myself into a poet along with all the other things I was doing. And then I came across this poem and I realized that this person who I thought was, you know, a model of a certain kind of literary virtue and a certain kind of clarity and simplicity and order was actually an incredibly dramatically ambitious poet. And I'll read in the waiting room and then uh, I will read kind of its companion poem at the fish houses in the waiting room. In Worcester, Massachusetts, I went with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist's appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter. It got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown-up people, arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines. My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time, and while I waited, I read the National Geographic. I could read and carefully studied the photographs. The inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Osa and Martin Johnson, dressed in riding breeches, laced boots, and pith helmets. A dead man slung on a pole. Long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black, naked women with necks wound round and round with wire, like the necks of light bulbs. Their breasts were horrifying. I read it right straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date. Suddenly, from inside, came an oh of pain. On Consuelo's voice, not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice, in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I was my foolish aunt. I, we, were falling, falling, our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 1918. I said to myself, three days and you'll be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold, blue-black space. But I felt, you are an I, you are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. I gave a sidelong glance. I couldn't look any higher. 
at shadowy gray knees, trousers and skirts and boots, and different pairs of hands lying under the lamps. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened, that nothing stranger could ever happen. Why should I be my aunt, or me, or anyone? What similarities, boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat, or even the National Geographic and those awful hanging breasts, held us all together, or made us all just one? How? I didn't know any word for it. How unlikely. How had I come to be here, like them, and overhear a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse, but hadn't? The waiting room was bright and too hot. It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another and another. Then I was back in it. The war was on. Outside in Worcester, Massachusetts, were night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. So that is about that moment of recognition, that moment of being, that we arrive and arrive and arrive at, and always, you know, seem to slip past at the moment of our arrival. And the next poem I'm going to read at the Fish Houses, which is sort of, you know, I guess in a way, the companion poem to In the Waiting Room, in some way, you know. And this is sort of the theme of In the Waiting Room, conceived and understood from a different point of view entirely at the fish houses. Although it is a cold evening, down by one of the fish houses, an old man sits netting, his net in the gloaming almost invisible, a dark purple-brown, and his shuttle worn and polished. The air smells so strong of codfish it makes one's nose run and one's eyes water. The five fish houses have steeply peaked roofs and narrow cleated gangplanks slant up to storerooms in the gables for the wheelbarrows to be pushed up and down on. All is silver. The heavy surface of the sea swelling slowly as if considering spilling over is opaque, but the silver of the benches, the lobster pots, and mass scattered among the wild, jagged rocks is of an apparent translucence, like the small old buildings with an emerald moss growing on their shoreward walls. The big fish tubs are completely lined with layers of beautiful herring scales, and the wheelbarrows are similarly plastered with creamy, iridescent coats of mail with small iridescent flies crawling on them. Up on the little slope behind the houses, set in the sparse bright sprinkle of grass, is an ancient wooden capstan, cracked with two long bleached handles and some melancholy stains like dried blood, where the ironwork is rusted. The old man accepts a lucky strike. He was a friend of my grandfather, we talk of the decline in the population and of codfish and herring while he waits for a herring boat to come in. 
There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb. He has scraped the scales, the principal beauty, from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away. Down at the water's edge, at the place where they haul up the boats, up the long ramp descending into the water, thin silver tree trunks are laid horizontally across the gray stones, down and down, at intervals of four or five feet. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, element bearable to no mortal, to fish and to seals. One seal particularly I have seen here evening after evening. He was curious about me. He was interested in music. Like me, a believer in total immersion. So I used to sing him Baptist hymns. I also sang, A mighty fortress is our God. He stood up in the water and regarded me steadily, moving his head a little. Then he would disappear, then suddenly emerge almost in the same spot with a sort of shrug, as if it were against his better judgment. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, the clear gray icy water. Back behind us, the dignified tall firs begin, bluish associating with their shadows. A million Christmas trees stand, waiting for Christmas. The water seems suspended above the rounded gray and blue-gray stones. I have seen it over and over, the same sea, the same slightly indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately, your bones would begin to ache and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be, dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts, forever flowing and drawn, and, since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. She always starts out so low, so even, you know. And you never quite realize how much pressure is building up because the control is so magnificent, you know. The mastery of the sentence, the commitment to like living the poem along the sentence and seeing its opportunities and expanding it outward. But at the same time, there is this other narrative taking place in her mind of which we are just getting tiny little glimpses. You know, we don't quite understand what's going on, but the way in which she sort of continually shepherds us, you know, further and further and further until she can't go any further, you know. I mean, in some sense, she kind of always arrives at a limit that's fundamental in some way, I think. And I think a part of it is always when I've contemplated her, and of course I've contemplated her a lot, she was a poet who freed me along with Auden when I was kind of 
in my sort of early and mid-twenties freed me from the terrible burden of having to write like John Ashbery. Because <laughs> he was sort of like, when I was a kid, I was a hip young poetry reader and literature reader, and Ashbery was really cool. This was like before Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror when he was sort of a New York coterie figure and all the hip literary kids I knew came from New York and they listened to the Velvet Underground and they read John Ashbery and I thought I had to be like them but I couldn't quite be like them, you know. And uh, But I recognized the distinction of someone like Ashbery and I sort of felt, well, you know, I had to find another model and, and Bishop came along I and mean, she was really a lifeline for me in that way. And I sort of felt like, oh yeah, you know, this is really great and it seems in some way unmarked by time. There seems to be something perennial about these concerns. They will always be the same concerns. There seems to be something absolutely eternal about the allegiance. You know, the allegiance to language at this level. The recognition that language is sort of a living thing and you have to get out of its way and let it do what it should do. And then, you know, the commitment to the world, especially the visual world. And, yeah, there's something beyond these kind of games we're playing. And also, I think, there's a kind of historicity, too, because she never abandoned the romantic ode. You know, she's like kind of the person of her generation who continued to write them after people like Rutke and Lowell and Berryman sort of let them go and started trying to do something else. She was kind of committed to that, you know, to that great series of poems that begin, you know, in the 1790s and, you know, move up to her and she managed them. She managed them very beautifully. And so she was very important to me and it's great to come down here and be allowed to celebrate her and thank her in some way. Although she's dead and gone. I mean, she's not listening to us, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, I'm going to read a poem of mine, which is a recent poem. And I guess it's sort of bishop-like in a lot of ways, but it's also a celebration of sight. And it's a poem about my mother who's very old and kind of in uh, distressed physical condition now. And uh, she also is, a, like Bishop, a strong, inscrutable woman. The poem's called Your Living Eyes. They wheeled you, your caregivers did, to the picture window to watch the birds fretting at the feeder. Then they forgot you there and you forgot them. A thousand years later, the angel of death sidled in, disguised as a little girl, clutching at her pinafore and chewing the ends of her pigtails. She had a look whose vacancy was over-rehearsed. But I hear your interview with her went well. I hear, actually, that it went better than anybody could ever have thought it would. She said, beauty and sadness are never far apart. You said, bullshit. She said, some birds are real, some are invisible, but which are which? You said, back off, bitch. She stared out the window. Her eyes narrowed, but they didn't touch. What was she seeing? What was she saying to herself? Do I know? 
or do I care? Enough with these impassive forces, this one or that other one, the one who gave you life, you who gave me life. The yellow of the finches is as molten as ever, splashing on the holly bushes. The moon, pale white inside the pale blue morning, dropping its panicles of glass on the bright grass, is climbing up, but the sun is climbing down. The world your eyes see is the world as it really is, and you and I are going to live in it forever, and we will hitchhike to the painted hills together and hop a freight back home. Thank you. is based on an incident much distorted by me from the Mahabharata, which is a Sanskrit epic poem, uh, nine times the volume of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined, and it's called The Long Meadow. Near the end of one of the old poems, the son of righteousness, the source of virtue and civility, on whose back the kingdom is carried, as on the back of the tortoise the earth is carried, passes into the next world. The wood is dark, the wood is dark, and on the other side of the wood the sea is shallow, warm, endless. In and around it there is no threat of life. So little is the atmosphere charged with possibility that he might as well be wading through a flooded basement. He wades for what seems like forever and never stops to rest in the shade of the metal rain trees, springing out of the water at fixed intervals. Time, though endless, is also short. So he wades on until he walks out of the sea and into the mountains, where he burns on the windward slopes and freezes in the valleys. After unendurable struggles, he finally arrives at the celestial realm. The God waits there for him. The God invites him to enter. But looking through the glowing portal, 
He sees on that happy plain not those he thinks wait eagerly for him, his beloved, his brothers, his companions in war and exile, all long since dead and gone. But, sitting pretty and enjoying the gorgeous sunset, his cousin and bitter enemy, the cause of that war, that exile, whose arrogance and vicious indolence plunge the world into grief. The god informs him that yes, those he loved have been carried down the river of fire. Their thirst for justice offended the cosmic powers, who are jealous of justice. In their place in the celestial realm, called Alaukika in the ancient texts, the breaker of faith is now glorified. He, at least, acted in keeping with his nature. Who has not felt a little of the despair the Son of Righteousness now feels, staring wildly around him? The God watches, not without compassion and a certain wonder. This is the final illusion, the one to which all the others lead. He has to pierce through it himself, without divine assistance. He will take a long time about it, with only his dog to keep him company, the mongrel dog celebrated down the millennia, who has waited with him, shivered and burned with him, and never abandoned him to his loneliness. That dog bears a slight resemblance to my dog, a skinny, restless, needy, overprotective mutt who was rescued from a crack house by Suzanne. On weekends, and when I can shake free during the week, I take her to the long meadow in Prospect Park, where dogs are allowed off the leash in the early morning. She's gray-muzzled and old now, but you can't tell that by the way she runs. And that's Vijay Sashadri. Engaging, 
engaging Perfection's in that non-perfection and I see queen, I see king, I see king, I see queen, well None of you know my kingdom mania Last chance to retract it Last chance to retract it about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week